This is our 10th lesson and be our last lesson. Uh, but we also have had for a number of years a series of men's discipleship uh, weekends that we've titled Iron Sharpens Iron, which comes from Proverbs 27:17, which says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And so that's the life in our communion. We're here to help one another, to sharpen one another. And we want to continue that thought today. Uh, God sovereignly puts us, as he calls us in Christ, he puts us into the body of Christ. He makes us part of the life of Christ. We are in communion with him. And since he puts each of us into the body of Christ, that means we are in communion with one another. We are tied together in him. And that's because he thought it was both good and necessary. In other words, it's not optional. Moreover, this is good and necessary for a variety of reasons, and we've touched on a number of those reasons during this series of lessons. If we neglect these things, it not only harms us, it harms the whole body. Likewise, nurturing and maturing in these things leads to health, and vigor in the body. The goal, of course, is Christian maturity. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, that we may grow up in all aspects, in, in, in all things, into him who is the head, Christ, from the whole body, joined, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's a very comprehensive statement that he makes here, why the church is so important, why when we neglect it and its teaching and all that it offers, we suffer, and then, of course, the body itself suffers. In this, in the last lesson, in this last lesson, I want to address the broad question of, am I my brother's keeper? A corollary to this subject will be, will be the place of Christian liberty. The Bible sets before us obligations, both our liberties as well as our limitations. Again, these might be thought of as two tracks that a train runs on, which gives us the true freedom when we run on those tracks to reach our destination. Wisdom is the ability to apply our liberties and limitations to a range of situations so that we may have a clear conscience while recognizing that our liberty must be governed by our love for our Christian brothers and sisters. This goes against two great American axioms, to each his own and live and let live. In other words, we generally want to do what we want to do and second, we don't want to feel any responsibility for others. <coughs> Excuse me. Our question, am I my brother's keeper, comes from Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God's answer to that question today is basically the same answer that he gave uh, in Cain's day, which is, yes, you are. Of course, no one's always the absolute keeper.
gatekeeper of others in, in that we're not responsible for everyone's well-being at all times and in all places. However, we may not do them harm or violence, uh, and we may, do, may not do that against one another, and this includes the violence of the tongue in the form of gossip, as, for example, in 2 Corinthians 12.20, where Paul puts it this way, no contentions, jealousies, outburst of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Second, we are to exhibit brotherly love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as it's put in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. So Paul describes the body of Christ, that is the church or our communion, as being like the human body, which is made up, of course, of many parts or members, all of whom are important to the function and the well-being of the body. That means you are important to the well-functioning and well-being of this body. So that's why it's so important for you to do your part, because it affects everybody. We're continually encouraged, of course, throughout the New Testament to love one another. Uh, Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, sometimes, of course, love must correct. It must admonish. It must reprove. So, for example, I often point out that wives who are uh, in a position of submission to their husbands, but part of their job, if you will, part of their role, part of their task, if they love their husbands and respect their husbands, is that they correct their husbands when they need correcting. And they do so respectfully. That's part of love. Love love doesn't allow sin or things to go on without bringing about some correction. Second uh, Thessalonians three thirteen to fifteen. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is the, this is the instruction given to all of God's people. This is what we're to do if someone doesn't sin. We are to admonish them as brothers. Moreover, if your brother sins, Matthew eighteen fifteen, you go to him, tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he hears you, you've gained your brother. You don't get to just look the other way. You don't get to just gossip about it and grumble about it and be bitter about it. You have an obligation, I have an obligation to go to our brothers and sisters. As correction is needed, it's always to be done, of course, in a spirit of love with the goal of reconciliation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14-15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So this instruction, again, was not limited to pastors and elders. This is the instruction given to all of us in the church. 
Now, another question related to am I my brother's keeper is one found in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, where a lawyer wanting to justify himself asks, and who is my neighbor? Both questions, am I my brother's keeper and who is my neighbor, were asked to avoid doing what they knew was right or they attempted to defend what they knew uh, was wrong. Cain did know where Abel was. He knew exactly where the body was. We're called to bear one another's burdens and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And in this second question, we have another instance of someone trying to avoid this truth. We read in, again in Luke 10, 25-29, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and testing Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus makes a similar point in Matthew 25, 37 through 40. He said, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and uh, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Who is my neighbor? One of the least of these. Anyone and everyone in need. And when we help our neighbor in need, it's as though we're helping Christ himself. As this is applied to life in our communion, there is an additional emphasis of obligation we find in Galatians 6, 9 through 10, and let us not grow weary while doing good, For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have a special obligation to one another. Why? Because we're close. Just like you have a special obligation to your wife or husband or children, your family, you have a special obligation to this family. We have an obligation to everyone. We have a special obligation here. We're accountable to God. And we also bear, again, responsibility for each other, uh, especially when it comes to our own conduct and how it affects others. And this is where we're going to kind of shift and talk about Christian liberty. Because it's not just helping someone do something or praying with somebody. It is all of those things. But now we're going to get down to how my conduct might impact the body. So Paul also addresses the areas where Christians, for example, may disagree. He said in Romans 14.1, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. There are are many things that are not directly spoken about in God's word, or they're not so clear, and therefore we are not to become judges in these things. And so Paul is going to develop this quite a bit in Romans 14. So let's look at verses 12 through 18. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. That's a good thing for us all to remember. 
Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, determine to do this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Uh, excuse me. I know and am convinced by the, uh, by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're to no long, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom Christ, for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and, the, and in, in the joy of the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable uh, to God and approved by men. So the first word here that's used that's translated stumbling block, the Greek word, gives us the image of a path covered with large stones. And the idea is someone may trip over those. It's almost impossible to walk on this path without tripping over these stones and falling. And so we're talking about things that we have freedom to do with a clear conscience before God and to the glory of God, but which would possibly trip up a weaker Christian or cause him to fall into sin. I am my brother's keeper. I have an obligation to recognize that what I'm doing might have that kind of impact. The second word that you use, scandalon, to cause to fall gives us the image of an animal trap. And so when he goes for the bait, he trips the wire which springs the trap and he either falls into a pit or a net falls over him, something like that. And so there may be activities that you might freely engage in to the glory of God, but if practiced by a weaker Christian, might ensnare him in sin uh, from which he couldn't escape. And so Paul isn't saying that we should refrain from doing anything that other, that other Christians disapprove of. In other words, our standard isn't to say, what do you, make me a list of all the things you disapprove of and now I can't do them. That's not the standard. Or anything that would bother them. He's not saying, no, he's not saying you can't do things because it bothers somebody else when you do. Or it upsets their sense of propriety. Because there are pietistic and legalistic Christians who create their own list of do's and don'ts who think spirituality is a matter of observing their particular taboos. They insist on these standards for everybody else. And so I want to be clear that we do not have an obligation to cave in to those demands. In fact, we're going to see later, we'll talk about it, that there is this distinction between what we can't, there's a time when we shouldn't do something, and probably a time when we must. <coughs> so we, um, in our Romans 14 text, Paul gives us three reasons why we cannot be stumbling blocks for our fellow Christians. In verses 14 and 15, uh, it, it first, the first reason is love requires it. I know I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus there's nothing unclean of itself, he said, but it, to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So one of the major issues at the church in Rome was eating meat. Uh, for some, it was the meat forbidden by the Old Testament law. For others, the problem was that it hadn't been prepared in the way that the law required. For others, 
It was meat that had been purchased in the marketplace that had probably been dedicated to a pagan idol. And so Paul assures them that nothing is ceremonially unclean in itself. All foods are good and acceptable, but not everyone has has learned to enjoy those foods yet. Maybe they're not theologically convinced yet. Maybe that's just been the tradition they've grown up in, and that's all they've ever known. And so there's a kind of a psychological uh, guilt attached to that kind of thing. Uh, even I know sometimes I'm theologically convinced of something, but I'm not psychologically there yet. Uh, so those things kind of have to come together, have to get comfortable. It takes time, it takes instruction. And so he says, um, if a person feels that certain things would be unclean for him, then he needs to avoid them. Now, we have different kinds of food issues today. We don't have those particular issues, but food is another one of the issues that comes up in churches, what you can and can't eat, what you should and shouldn't eat, and what's good for you and what's not good for you, and people have all kinds of opinions about that, and they have strong opinions about that. And, and so in that sense, I think this text applies to this. You're free to have strong opinions about that as long as it's not a sin, But what you're not free to do is impose your strong opinions on everyone else, nor are you free to flaunt your opinion in the face of other people. There's this tension, this balance that's called for. Why? Because we love each other. And our love for each other supersedes our strong opinions one way or the other about food, drink, and other things. And so, first of all, if you feel that way, don't violate your conscience. You shouldn't do it if you think it's a sin. Or it might be a sin. So out of Christian love, those who have the freedom to indulge shouldn't do anything that might cause another Christian to do what for him would be a sin, what might grieve him, or what might eventually destroy him. So I can imagine Paul, or somebody has brought some food that they bought in the marketplace that may have been sacrificed to an idol, and there are Christians there that think you shouldn't do that. And so Paul himself basically says, well, I just won't eat it. I don't need to eat that. I'll eat it. I may eat it when I'm on the road, when, when they're not here. I'm not, in other words, he's not forbidden to eat it. He just, he just recognizes there's something more important right now, and that's not to offend their, his brother, his kindness, his desire for peace, all those things. Second, uh, the text says our reputation requires it. Romans 14:6. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Yes, you can do this. It's nothing wrong with it, but you don't have to do it either. So the good Paul mentions is probably our Christian liberty. If insisting on exercising our liberty causes another Christian to sin, outsiders are going to see our lack of concern for one another and use it as an excuse uh, to say bad things about us. And if our insistence on exercising our liberty gets us into an argument with other Christians about what's right and wrong, and we start segregating and separating over it, and that happens in the church, outsiders are going to be confused about it, that's meaning, uh, the meaning of the gospel, and use that as an excuse to reject it. And so one of the principles, I think, to keep in mind is the church, within the church, we don't get to set up our own little club. Well, we like to do this, so we'll sit over here in this corner, metaphorically or actually, and be our own club. Because we're the strong Christians and they're the weak ones. 
Third, the gospel requires it. Verse 17 and 18, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So the reality of the Christian faith isn't demonstrated by insisting on our right to eat certain foods or drink certain drinks or go certain places or do certain things. It is demonstrated primarily by three things. Righteousness, that is the assurance that we've been granted a right standing before God. Peace, the assurance that we have peace with God on the basis of Christ's death. And joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the assurance that God is with us, he loves us, and he'll take care of us. These, are the, these things are the basis for our communion and fellowship. And then Paul adds, verse 18, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. It means, acceptable means that we are well, we're well-pleasing in God's sight. God likes it when we do this. God's delighted with that kind of life, and people will see it and be attracted by it. So maybe, for example, you feel the freedom to engage in some things that other Christians feel would be a sin for them. You also have the freedom to limit your freedom. Did you know that? To keep others from falling into sin. That's a freedom. And that, in the final analysis, is true freedom. Our first responsibility is to our fellow Christians, which goes beyond the negative, beyond don't cause others to sin. So what we're to do is pursue peace. We're to pursue edification. And so he continues in verses 19 through 23 of Romans 14. (coughs) Therefore, let us pursue the things, pursue them, which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So, three more things. First, be an edifier and not a destroyer. We're here to build one another up, not tear one another down. The word edify originally referred to the erecting of a building, but it came to refer to building up a people. People are built up in an atmosphere of peace and harmony. I think about the COVID situation as a good example of where Christian charity and grace were and are important. Differing views, differing fears, differing understandings. The devil can use anything to destroy communion. Anything. And if we quarrel with one another about trivialities, nobody is going to be built up. In fact, the work of God may be destroyed. I've seen churches split over these things. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food or anything else. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. Eats with offense means causing another Christian to fall into sin if he eats the food, not if you eat the food. 
He doesn't have a clear conscience yet. He's not convinced. He's not there yet. We might think of that in regard to something like alcohol. And it's just, it, it isn't just a matter of food. Anything, again, may cause a fellow believer to trip up and fall into sin. Verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. So God wants us to build them up, not break them down. He wants communion, not death. Remember what Jesus said about it in Matthew 18, 6. Whoever causes one of, the little, of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Second, uh, we must be discreet with our liberty. Romans 14:22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, don't flaunt your liberty. It's perfectly proper to teach a weaker brother the truth of the liberty that he has in Christ. He needs to know that spiritually, uh, uh, spirituality is not measured by a list of man-made do's and don'ts. But there's no reason to dangle your liberty before him and rub it in his notes. That's not going to help him. It's just going to irritate him. It's going to cause conflict. It may tempt him. So it would be best for you, if need be, to enjoy your liberty in private. And that's what Paul says about the privileges of Christian liberty as well. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So in, in, your, in your proving of, oh, I can do this, don't condemn yourself by forcing it now upon others and tempting them. Now you're bringing about, you're taking your liberty and using it for the wrong reason. Third, be aware of the presence of doubts. Verse, 14, uh, verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. We could have this in theological issues. Somebody's not convinced of uh, infant baptism. They're just not there yet. They're struggling with that. We could take any number of issues. I'm just using that as a, kind of an obvious example. Well, be patient. You, weren't, you, you might have always been there either. It takes time to think through things. Not everybody arrives at the same place at the same time. Uh, I have an incubator theory um, that says, you know, sometimes I see somebody struggling with something. It's like a little chick trying to come out of an egg. I want to help it. But if I do, I'll kill it. It has to go through that. It has to go through that at its own pace. I can provide a warm, moist environment a loving environment, and let them hatch. Let God do that work. That's his work. So that's kindness. That's patience. That's the realization that, again, we're not all at the same place at the same time, and that's okay. And so do not pressure them to do things that they don't feel comfortable doing. If a person has an inner conviction that a certain behavior is wrong for him, and he goes ahead and he does it anyway because he feels pressure from you or others... Uh, possibly he sees you, you know, again, sees you doing it. He's acting against his conscience. There are doubts in his mind. It's not an act of biblical conviction. And then Paul says that if it's not an act, if you're not doing this because you think it's right, then it's sin. Because you're acting, you're violating what you think to be sin. Or maybe it might be sin. And you're doing it anyway because everybody else is doing it. So one thing could, could be a sin for one person and not for another. 
So teach the biblical basis for freedom in Christ, but at the same time be sensitive to people's doubts. Now let me caution those of you who always think of yourself as the stronger brother. I'm pretty sure the prodigal son's older brother thought of himself as the stronger of the two. Uh, When in fact, he was just an arrogant, self-righteous jerk. That picture out in the foyer. I love that picture. Rembrandt, the prodigal. Look in the background. There's the son. He's actually up a step in that picture. He's higher and he's looking down on his younger brother his weaker brother. And so um, it's a a caution. I think there's a lot of these in the Bible. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You who are stronger, you know, uh, restore such a one with what? What should you have? Humility. Meekness. Don't be arrogant. So... Again, the stronger brother can kind of have this little self-righteous sense that I'm a, a tad bit better than you. I'm more advanced than you, brother. Um, so the person who's practicing Christian liberty can do so in a sinful manner. So there are plenty of self-indulgent and overindulgent Christians who may be participating in something, not because they have really sat down and thought through the issue prayerfully and they believe that what they're doing uh, can glorify God, but simply because they want to indulge themselves. And you can't tell me I can't. So, to the so-called stronger brother, are you willing to forego the pleasure of a liberty for the good of others? Can you practice your liberty without flaunting it before them? Sinclair Ferguson's made some great observations on this. He points out the subtle truth is that the Christian who must exercise his liberty is in bondage to the very thing he insists on doing. Paul says that if the kingdom consists for you in food, drink, and the like, then you have missed missed the point of the gospel and the freedom of the Spirit. So Christian liberty requires grasping the principle that will produce this true biblical balance. I'm going to take a few thoughts here from Romans 15, 1 through 3. We ought not to please ourselves, for even Christ did not please himself. Well, I do it because I can. I do it because I want to. I do it because you can't tell me I can't. Yeah, but you're hurting other people. Oh, well. Don't bring that up. So this reduces the issue to the basic question of love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a desire to imitate him since his spirit indwells us to make us more like him. Only when we recognize that we don't deserve our what we call our rights can we properly exercise them as privileges. Sensitivity to others in the church depends on this sense of our own unworthiness. And so if we assume that we have liberties to be exercised at all costs, 
we become potentially lethal weapons in our community, all too capable of destroying someone for whom Christ has died. Now this doesn't, again, doesn't mean that I must become the slave to someone else's conscience. Here's the balance. So um, I think of this in the relationship of a husband and wife, okay? Um, the wife's body belongs to the husband. The husband's body belongs to the wife. There's a mutual ownership, a mutual submission, according to Ephesians. We belong to each other. So what does that mean? Well, now we have to work that out, and it's not always easy because there's kind of a built-in tension here. You don't get to do whatever you want to do with somebody else. Well, but yes, you do. There, there's, there's both. There's a, it, Chesterton talks a lot about all the paradoxes in the Bible. They're both true. Both of these things are true. John Calvin puts the point well when he says that we restrain the exercise of our freedom for the sake of, a weak, of weak believers, but not when we are faced with Pharisees who demand that we conform to what is unscriptural. Let me read that again. We restrain the exercise of our freedom for the sake of weak believers, but not when we are faced with Pharisees who demand that we conform to what is unscriptural. So I think of Paul, who uh, certainly uh, allowed and even uh, yeah allowed circumcision of Jewish believers, and he did so out of deference to Jewish the, the Jewish community who'd had this as their tradition for thousands of years. But he absolutely refused that when it was a Gentile believer and Jews were saying, well, he has to be circumcised too. And that's where he drew the line. No, we're not doing that. And that takes wisdom. So where the gospel is at stake, liberty needs to be exercised. But when the stability, where the stability of a weak Christian is at stake, we need to restrain, restrain it. One day, of course, we will all enjoy the glorious liberty of the children of God but for now, as Martin Luther wrote, quote, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up cover for evil, but living as servants of God. <clears throat> so I want to close this series with one more observation. And as I thought about this, I think this series could go on for some time. There are obviously things we haven't covered, but I've tried to give a, a broad overview of some of the things that are important for us to live in love, to live in peace, uh, unity, to help one another grow, why we have duties and obligations that go beyond what I want to do in the church. We we do things all the time we don't want to do, but we need to do. We do them joyfully. That's being a grown-up. That's what maturity is. But I want to close with this one last observation about virtue signaling. 
Um, virtue signaling, I'm, I assume, has been around throughout human history, uh, but it's a term that's kind of come to come to the surface uh, in our day. And there's all kinds of ways to virtue signal. I want to do something so that you know what a good person I am. It's a way of letting you know that. And uh, so we this virtue signal, that is public expressions of opinions or sentiments intended, again, to demonstrate to everybody else what a good person I am. But as we live in communion with one another, there's a temptation uh, within the community for us to want to distinguish ourselves from one another in a sort of spiritual hierarchy. And so we have spiritual virtue signaling. And I've seen this all my life. I've been guilty of it. Uh, I think it's just a human temptation. I think it's associated with human pride. I want to be special. Uh, Maybe just a little bit more than you. And so there are thousands of ways to let others know that we're a bit more spiritual or mature than they are. Now, this actually, I think, fits in a little bit with the Christian liberty thing. Are you the stronger brother or the weaker brother? Um, Again, there's a tension, in a sense, that's there. And so in your process of being the stronger brother, you may inadvertently, very in a moment, become the weaker brother by asserting your liberty when you shouldn't be. So what are some of the ways we can virtue signal spiritually within the church? Well, we could do it with words or special vocabulary. Uh, I agree, uh, some of you seen it. There's a movie out, uh, The Jesus Revolution. We're hoping to go see that because we, that we live that. We grew up in that period of time. And I remember being in my large Southern Baptist church as a teenager, and I look back now and I'm embarrassed. Uh, I should have been embarrassed then, but I was a teenager. So um, I didn't. I thought I was being very spiritual, me and this group, who would sit on like the third row or second pew during the service, all with our New, New American Standard Bibles and our Bible cases, zip-up zip cases, um, and lots of markings in the Bible that everybody could see, you know, when you opened your Bible because you were, you studied your Bible. All these other people don't have their Bibles, or they sure don't have cases for their Bibles, and they're not New American Standard versions. And here we sat in our pious row of spiritual teenagers on fire for Jesus and sitting in judgment of the sermon and everything else that was going on around us. And we had our own little vocabulary, uh, like teenagers are prone to do anyway, but adults do it too. But ours was very spiritual. It was like, praise the Lord. Well, see, in the church I grew up in, you just people didn't express themselves that way. You wouldn't raise your hands. You wouldn't say amen. You wouldn't, sure wouldn't say, praise the Lord. Man, we said praise the Lord to everything. Well, how you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Praise the Lord. Well, how's this? Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, there's a whole bunch of other ways this can be done verbally. And it varies from church to church, from era to era. But it's, what it, it's a way, if you're not careful, am I opposed to saying praise the Lord? Absolutely not. I'll just say it now. Praise the Lord. Okay? We should all praise the Lord. We should say praise the Lord. But we shouldn't say praise the Lord if we're saying it in order to distinguish ourselves and say to everybody else, you're not praising the Poor you. Don't you wish you could be like me? 
how we dress, how we wear our hair, jewelry, tattoos. There's all kinds of outward ways we could do this to distinguish ourselves, to say, look at me. I'm special. I'm a little more spiritual than you. I've got this big cross I hang around my neck. I remember that, too, during that period. You know, the bigger the cross, the better. Um, uh, so, um, flaunting our liberties. I'm reformed. I can drink now. See, I got a beer and a cigar. <laughs> Am I saying you shouldn't have a beer or a cigar? No, I'm not. But could those become ways of saying to other people who don't do that that you're just a little more liberated than they are? You're more mature and more advanced. And then in the process of, if that's what you're saying, you actually are demonstrating how immature you are. Our Bibles, as I said, I mentioned, you know, we had to have a special Bible or the way we carried our Bible or the fact that we always had it with us and we could whip it out at any moment to show somebody we had our Bibles. We game, game our little badge, our little virtue signaling. Discussions about books and theology. We could exclude all kinds of people that way, right? They, they don't understand. They don't know what we're talking about. But we're going to come over and talk about deep things. Should you go over there and talk about deep things? You should. Should other people want to do that? They should. What am I saying? I'm, I'm drawing a pretty fine line here, but a pretty important one. Anything, any good thing, and I've said this over and over, at your house, any good thing, everything at your house ought to be contributing to communion. But every, any one of those same things can be used to tear communion apart. And the same thing's true in the church. A good thing a thing that you have liberty to, to use and probably in many cases should use can also be used in the other direction. The devil loves to take it and twist it to your own destruction, even the Scriptures. And on and on it goes. And so my message in regard to the virtue signaling is just be aware of that. Ask yourself, why am I doing this? And you know, if you're like me, and I think this is generally true, my very best things are always tainted just a bit, sometimes quite a bit, by my pride or arrogance or some sinful thing because I'm a sinner. And it's good to be on guard about those things, not to, not to shut you down, but to, to, to rein you in, to rein me in, to say, okay, buster, don't get, don't get so, so big here. Step back. Be humble. Seek the good of others. You don't have to be the most important person around. Uh, so there's a lot here that can be fleshed out from this. But I, th I do think this is a problem in, in Christian churches. It has, I've seen it all my life. But I think in our reform circles and even within the CREC culture itself, we have our own little set of virtue signaling things that our, our way of saying to others, we're just a tad bit more spiritual than you. We can, we can do that with worship. We can do that with, again, it's hard, it'd be hard to think of something that we couldn't do that with. 
Why? Because it's a heart issue. It's not the thing itself. The thing itself may be perfectly fine. But when I get a hold of it, I start using it for the wrong reason. So I would urge all of us to be on guard against that in ourselves. And I guess I would close this by just saying, pursue peace, fervently love the brethren, be humble, gracious, kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, uh, and also be rigorous in your pursuit of knowing God and knowing theology and understanding our faith and applying it to the world. And it's all of these things together that come together that make us a healthy communion, a healthy body, which is our goal. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the church and putting us in the church and giving us your word and spirit to teach us how we might live in that communion. Uh, Help us, Lord, to be wise and to be mature and to be serving you as we serve one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.